0: Uh, would you pray with me as we uh, enter our time of teaching? Father God, we thank you. This is all because of you. Every breath is because of you. The reason we gather and have community is because of you. You're a God of community. The Trinity from before time had great fellowship with one another. God, you sent your son Jesus to remove our sin and make new community possible in your name, community that's different and and transcends even our brokenness. God, we're just so thankful to have this space, God. May this space resemble your kingdom, the place where you dwell, where you are king, where your name is lifted up in none of our names. And we can just come and rest. We can just rest, knowing that we don't have to be anything because you are everything. So, God, just remind us of that as we study this psalm. Remind us of who we are and who you are. Who are we, God, that you love us? We're so thankful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, turn to Psalm 45. If you don't, uh, have your own copy. There's Bibles in the seat back in front of you that look like this. And if you do grab this Bible, we're on page 496. 496 in the Pew Bible there. And uh, this is our last Sunday in our series in the Psalms. Every summer we do the Summer of Psalms and we knock off a few. Our hope is by year 20 or so we'll have worked through all 150 Psalms. And the Psalms are the songbook of Jesus. This is sort of The songs he would know and he would recite and he would repeat. And we see that even in his life and teaching. He'll reference these psalms. He knew them so well. And so we want to study them and learn what it means to pray and lift our voices to God. And so uh, I love this every summer. I'm I'm sad to see it go. And next week we'll be back in 1 Corinthians, which is our series uh, that you see the title here, Moving in Step with the Peculiar Wisdom of Christ. We've got a few more chapters in 1 Corinthians. We'll finish that out before the Advent season. Really excited about that. Um, I told you this when we started 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we'll get to in, in three weeks, and then we'll spend like four weeks in chapter 15, is my favorite chapter of the Bible. <laughs> so if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. Maybe lunch. Okay, so chapter 15, it's all about the resurrection. So that's coming up in the fall, so I'm so excited about that. Tell everybody you know about that. If If there's one chapter of the Bible... Uh, That I'd want everyone to know and read. It's chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So we get to spend some time in that in the fall. It's an amazing, amazing proclamation of the resurrected Christ and what that means for everyone in the world. So, uh, super excited. So here we go Psalm 45. Now, um, I want you to think about the best wedding you've ever attended. The best wedding you've ever attended. Now, Assuming you didn't go to my wedding, then I, uh, no, just, I loved my wedding. It was the best wedding I ever attended. But think about a wedding you weren't getting married at. Uh, What was it about the wedding that you loved so much? Why was it great? Uh, Think about that for just a sec. Because this psalm is a royal wedding song. This is a song that was probably first written for a royal wedding. Now, when we try to think of a perfect wedding, actually, it's not so hard, is it? For some reason, we think a lot about weddings. For some reason, we have an opinion about whether this wedding was good and this one was not so good. Why do we care so much about weddings? Did you know that the wedding industry in the United States is a $3 billion industry? Did you know that globally, so it's not just an American problem, globally, $73 billion industry for weddings. What is it with weddings? Why do we love weddings so much? I mean, we're literally getting, we're just stripping marriage of all of its meaning, yet we still really love weddings. What's the deal? I'm going to make the case today that everyone is desperately scheming, planning, hoping for the perfect wedding because it was written in our hearts before the foundation of the earth. Whoa. Let's dig in. Allie, uh, Ali, and I noticed this together when we go to weddings. We always say this to each other. Like, one of the things that tells us if this is a great wedding or just an okay wedding. Every wedding's good. I'm pro-wedding. But a great wedding always has one thing. One thing. One thing. A great wedding always has either, and these are all kind of in the same category, either a great song, great wedding song that somebody sings, or a great poem that somebody's written to say over the couple, or a great speech, like a best man speech, or uh, a maid of honor, where's Amanda Campbell? Where's Amanda? Yeah, there you are, okay. Amanda crushed the wedding speech at her sister's wedding. And uh, every, it, there's something about it for us. Maybe we're weird. You know, everyone's got some food, it's always, eh, it's okay, you know, no matter how much money you spend, it's always okay. But, but if there's a great song or poem or somebody, somebody just proclaims something really great over the couple, or, it's just something, that was a great wedding. Today's psalm appears to be the record of such a song or poem that was recited at a royal wedding in ancient Israel. Now, we don't know what wedding it was. It could have been King Solomon or maybe King Ahab. Or, we don't know. But it seems to be at least founded in a real event. And then over time, people recognize that Song or that poem or that speech, that was, there was something divine about that. And so then it got passed around. And then it probably got used over and over again at other royal weddings after the fact. Now, some people even believe that maybe this psalm was recited or used at weddings of common folk, non royal folk, because for a day on your wedding, you're king and queen, right? For a day, you get to be king and queen. So perhaps this was used for that reason. But over time, there was just something about this song that resonated in the hearts of people. So it was used over and over again. Um, why is that? Now, think to that context, because I'm going to do two things today. Just to, I don't want to lose you. I'm going to do two things. The first thing, I want to be faithful to the text. This psalm was used in ancient Israel long before Jesus showed up on the scene. Okay? So there's meaning and truth in it. And if you don't understand the way it was used in ancient Israel, you won't understand the second part of my sermon today, which is the way it's used in the New Testament. Because this psalm is quoted in one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 1. This psalm. But if you don't understand how it was used, because there's meaning in it for ancient Israel, it wasn't just meaningless until Jesus showed up. Jesus, this, fulfilled the meaning of it. So for the first half of the sermon, we're going to just plop right here and stop and not seep too much into the Jesus interpretation, which is the fuller interpretation, but we want to feel the weight of the interpretation for the Old Testament saints, for the people of Israel, for the royal weddings that came and went all along their history. Now, royal weddings are important. They're really important. Did anybody watch the last royal wedding in the U.K.? Megan and Harry. Anybody watch that? This is embarrassing. I watched, I watched like the whole thing. <laughs> That's my life. Okay, I watched the whole, it was pretty good. Um, then American gave the uh, homily, American pastor. He did a fantastic job. So uh, it's quite a spectacle, isn't it? There's a lot being communicated at a royal wedding. I was talking to my friend Peter, Uh, Peter was at my Alpha table, Alpha's our introduction to Christianity course, and we'll be doing one of those in the near future, probably we're going to wait and do it in January, but uh, if you're looking forward to that, it's sort of an introduction to Christianity, it's a great introduction, Uh, it's called Alpha, and and Peter was at my table, now Peter is from Canada, and I didn't realize this, he was actually at the worship night on Thursday, and I was talking to Peter, I told him I was going to tell this story after, I was like, you wouldn't believe it. But something came up. Peter's grandfather's turning 100, and apparently in Canada, and I know we have some Canadians in the house, pro-Canada here at Sedaris, apparently uh, the Queen of England, when you turn 100 years old, will send you a personal letter congratulating you. I didn't realize how strong that connection still was between uh, the UK and Canada, and then Peter just started going, man. He was like, I love the queen. <laughs> he was just like, he was just on like a queen love rant. He was just like, the queen is great. And I was like, she seems great. <laughs> I don't know her, but <laughs> like from what I can tell. But he was like all very excited about the queen. Megan, Markle, not, not so excited about her. Peter wasn't. Now this psalm will actually, this is big time teaser. This psalm is going to tell us why Peter is not so excited about Megan. Very interesting. You're on the edge of your seat. But royal weddings are meaningful. They seem to impact people far and wide, whether they were there or not. Case in point Peter, a 20 something Google employee who's really into the queen and really into what royal things. So it means something. So this isn't just a wedding song. It's a royal wedding song. So it's important that you hear that as we read through it. So now what I want to do is I want to read through it and try to explain the importance of it to the people of Israel uh, at the time it was written and in the centuries that followed before Jesus came, okay? So here we go. Verse 1 says this. "Uh, My heart is moved by a noble theme, as I recite my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. Now pause. This is self-referential, meaning the writer of the, of the song is actually talking about himself. Interesting way to start a song. <laughs> the first line is all about how good you are at writing songs. But it's something important here. He, he's explaining how... Uh, how much of an honor it is that he gets to recite a speech at the royal wedding, at the king's wedding. What an honor that is. What a privilege. How much joy comes from getting to proclaim true things about the king. Has anyone here... um, I'll, I'll start with maybe the most common. Raise your hand. This is some class participation here. Raise your hand if you've given... A speech at a wedding. Have you given a speech at a wedding? That's a big honor. You're probably nervous about that, because this is a big thing. Okay, hands down. Have you ever uh, recited a poem at someone's wedding? Okay. Has anyone sang a song at someone's wedding? Amy, Ty, look whose hand's up. My hand. And everyone gasps. What? (laughs) What? You've sang a song. Ty knows this story. When I was 25 years old, I was living in Dallas, Texas. I'm from Seattle, living in Dallas, Texas. So I think there was some confusion there because people think Seattleites are real artistic and musical, Jimi Hendrix and all. But my roommate, Patrick, back then I used to just, just, just a little, just a little... Just a little guitar playing, just a little singing in my, in my bedroom. Never outside of my bedroom, never public. Just, a little, just, just for myself. Apparently, Patrick and his fiance had heard me through the drywall playing. And apparently, I sound pretty good through drywall. And one day, this is maybe like two months before their wedding, they came to me and they said, they, they played me a song. They said, this song was playing on our first date. And they played it for me. And it was the most awkward song. It was very beautiful. It was called Sea of Love. Write this down so you can look it up later. Sea of Love by Cat Powers. See, does anybody know the song <laughs> Sea of Love by Cat Powers? So they played it for me. And they said to me, Dave, we'd like for you to sing this at our wedding. Once you go listen to this song, you'll understand my perspective. I was 100% sure they were joking. Just listen to the song, and then picture me singing it. So I thought they were joking. Fast forward. A week before the wedding, they came to me. They said, Dave, we're so excited about the wedding. I said, me too, me too. They said, how's the song coming? I said to them, great. (laughs) At that point, I realized they weren't joking. They wanted me to play at the wedding. Oh, my goodness. So I'm in my room through the drywall, I'm playing, I'm practicing Sea of Love. I said, guys, will there be any accompaniment? (laughs) They'd be like, no, you'll be by yourself, (laughs) just you and your guitar. I said, okay. I get to the rehearsal. At the rehearsal, I'm asking them, okay, great, I'll play a song. I'm thinking maybe while they're doing, you know, First Communion or they're doing, you know, candle lighting or, or some really unimportant part of the ceremony, they'll have me up there distracting people. I said, so when am I up? They go, oh, look at the schedule here. And I look at the schedule. Dave plays while bride walks down the aisle. (laughs) What? Never played outside of my living room, except, I think maybe I played for my mom one time on her birthday, but I I mean, I've never done a public performance, and I'm supposed to play at this big Texas wedding, outdoors, by myself, no accompaniment, Cat Powers Sea of Love, while the bride walks down the aisle and it was a long walk it was like outdoor wedding like she's coming from a long ways away i, I blacked out <laughs> i mean i don't remember it i think it happened i blacked out never been more nervous in my life what an honor though to get to sing a love song over the lovely couple There's no real point to that, I just wanted to tell you that story. (laughs) It's a great story. Like, you, once you hear the song, you'll be like, wow. It was really a high watermark for me. It's been all downhill. I never got invited to do another wedding, I don't know why. But, it's a big deal. It's a privilege to sing Proclaim Truth Over the King and the Queen. Whether that's king and the queen for a day, at a common folk wedding, or at a royal wedding. And so this guy is saying, my heart is moved by a noble theme. Now, that Hebrew word moved actually is stirred. It actually is a cooking term, like a cooking pot. He's saying, my heart, I wrote for you. So he's actually, what he's saying is, when I recite and I repeat true things about this great king, my heart is now stirred up. This is such a cool thing. It's such an important thing for all of us. Let me just read something uh, from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. Chapter 52 says this. Just listen, we don't have this one on a slide. It says this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now I pause here because now we're jumping a little bit into interpretation for us thinking about King Jesus, but when we get to proclaim and sing truth and poetically jam on the goodness and the greatness of God and his salvation and who he is and his character, which is is what the songwriter's about to do, it 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 should come from a place of a stirred heart when we think about everything he's done for us and how exciting and how much joy should it bring us to get to be those heralds. So in a real sense, if we now apply this, and I'm jumping ahead and I'm going to stop, but we apply this to King Jesus, what this, what this psalmist is going to say about the king at the time, when we, all of us get to sing at Jesus' weddings, all of us get to proclaim and give Jesus' speeches, and we should, we should be so excited, it should be our greatest joy, like the psalmist says, to get to be the one that gets to sing this song. To proclaim this truth, to herald this good news. We should be so stirred up like a cooking pot to speak of our king. To speak of these noble themes, which are what? The message of salvation. This is a king who can save. This is a king who can set us free from our bondage. This is a king who can wash away our sin. Wow, we should be stirred up to speak, to sing, and proclaim. So more on this later when we speak about the marriage of Christ and his church. But I just want to pause there and just say, what a great way to start a song. Saying how lucky I am to get to sing it. And we are lucky to get to sing the song of King Jesus. Okay, so now back into the first part. Here he goes, here's his song. Verse two, what does he say? He says this, you, king, are the most handsome of men. Grace flows from your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So now he's speaking to the king first. And what we'll see is he'll speak to the king, then he'll speak to the queen, then he'll speak about the wedding, and then he'll say, this is our hope for your marriage. The first thing he says, you are beautiful, handsome, beautiful. Think radiant. Something about you It's beautiful. Uh, Grace flows from your lips. What's he talking about? I think he's probably both talking about the way the king speaks. He has a great way of speaking. He has a great way of encouraging and comforting his people. He has a great way of reminding them of their great value. And from his mouth... Comes expressions, decrees of justice and mercy, as we'll see. Grace flows from his house, meaning he, he has an eye for and he thinks of the poor and the powerless. And so he gives them free gifts that they might... So this is the kind of king that we see at this wedding. A king, grace flows from his lips in all these ways. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? I would like a king just like that. Now, verses 3 to 5. Hey, king, you are a mighty warrior. Strap your sword at your side. In your majesty and splendor. In your splendor, ride triumphantly. In the cause of truth, humility, and justice. May your right hand show your awe-inspiring axe. Your sharpened uh, arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. This is a beautiful picture. Yes, the perfect king, the true king, is a mighty warrior, like the commander-in-chief of the army, not just the giver of grace to the poor and the powerless, but also the protector of the realm. This is a true king. But what's so unique about the character of this king? Look at it. In your splendor, you ride triumphantly in the cause of... Truth, humility, and justice. This isn't just any ordinary king. This is a special kind of king. Truth, humility, and justice are the causes that he fights for. Not just his own expansion of territory, his own power, his own fame, his own vanity. No, he fights for truth, justice, and humility. He's never self-deceived. He's never self-serving. He's never self-affirming. His campaigns are for the good of truth, justice, and humility. So a good king does fight, but he fights to remove evil, to remove injustice, to remove lies, to remove the proud, to remove those who would fight against the poor and the powerless. That's a good king. That's a true king. And that's the king at this wedding. Wow. You feeling it? Do you want a king like this? How exciting it would be to be at this wedding. Oh, feel the anticipation. The arrows of the king pierce the hearts of his enemies. And the people's fall. Verse 6. Your throne, God. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. Now let me pause there. This is an interesting verse. This is one of the verses why this psalm has always been messianic, thinking about a coming king, because it seems like what he's he's addressing the human king as God. Right? So he says, your throne, God, is forever and ever. It's difficult to translate here. The word is not the personal name of Yahweh, but the name Elohim, which is a common word for God. So it could be that we're just doing here what was very common in the ancient Near East, which is the, the monarchies uh, would be um, seen as divine, right? So it's very common in that day to call the king like a god, right? This is probably not surprising to you. This would often happen even in the Roman Empire or the Greek Empire, uh, but even going further back to the time when this was written. Very common uh, to sort of see the kingship as divine. So he could just be using that sort of common language. Um, or he could be saying something more like this. Your divine throne is forever and ever. Meaning that we are God's nation, and therefore this is God's throne. He could be also saying, your throne is God's. Don't forget that. It's forever and ever. So it's difficult to know how to interpret it, and I don't think it matters entirely. I just, I just want to show you, this is a really interesting Thing to say about the king of a nation whose God was Yahweh this is how I would like to translate it I would say it like this your throne which don't forget is God's <laughs> is forever and ever I think that's what he's saying your throne is a throne that God has initiated and it is forever and ever and we're going to see why it's forever and ever so look at verse 7 So, your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than any of your companions. So, clearly, there's a differentiation between the king and God, right? Because it's God who has anointed the king with the ointment of joy, and why is that because look at this, this is such an important line you king love righteousness and hate wickedness this is so important they're not the same thing loving righteousness is not the exact same thing as hating wickedness both are important you may meet people there's times when I think man, this person really loves righteousness. But then wickedness enters the picture and I don't see the kind of hate for wickedness that I would expect based on their love of righteousness. Do you know anybody like this? There's times in our city where it's like this. Like, clearly they love righteousness but not always hate wickedness. Sometimes it's the other way around. They hate wickedness. They hate pride and greed. But for some reason they don't love righteousness. A true king has both he perfectly discerns what is righteous and good and he loves it and he, he perfectly discerns what is wicked and he hates it he won't have any part of it this is the perfect king and I would say for all of us this is, should be our goal that we somehow cultivate a love for righteousness and a hate for wickedness. And they're not the same thing. Figuring out what the difference is and how that plays out is very important. I think this is true of men and women, but I will say something here. A bit of a side note. When I go to a wedding, this makes it an amazing wedding when the groom is a good guy. (laughs) How do you know if he's a good guy? One of the ways to find out if he's a good guy is to know if he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. So if you're unmarried in the room, ladies, and you're looking for a man to marry, and you want to be married, find someone who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. That's what you should be looking for. Is there an appropriate level of an abhorrence to wickedness in the world. But I don't want to be a part of that. So a little bit of of energy is good. Hate's a strong word, right? I always tell my boys, we don't use that word. Now i got to say I was wrong. You can use that word. (laughs) Like the perfect king hates wickedness. Is there a little bit of energy there? Looking for a man to marry who's got some energy... Against the wickedness and the evil in the world? Do they love righteousness? Does their heart sing when they see beauty and goodness and rightness in the world? Or are they indifferent? Here is a king, the picture who's supposed to model for Israel and represent what it means to be a godly man. And he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness so that all might see what it is to be a man of God. So, if you come to me now, after I've studied the psalm, I'm going to ask you does he love righteousness and does he hate wickedness? And if you don't know, I'm going to go, you better go find out. Back in it. Here we go. Because of that, God. Your God has anointed you with the joy of oil. When you love righteousness and you hate wickedness, God will give you joy. Joy. More than any of your companions, he says. This is an amazing promise. Sometimes you think joy comes by not getting wrapped up in all that stuff. No, joy comes from seeing honestly the wickedness of the world and seeing righteousness in the world And being caught up in it, that's what brings joy. Verse 8, myrrh, aloes, cassia, perfume, it's all over your garments. (laughs) I just love that. This is like an Old Spice commercial. Just think Old Spice. They didn't think of anything new. He smells good, and that's a big deal. (laughs) From ivory palaces, harps bring you joy. You're a lover of the arts. You're a lover of music. Your house is full of music and song and beauty. King's daughters are among your honored women. They're part of your court. People want to be near you, want to be around you because you exude joy. And you won't let wickedness into your midst. And you love righteousness. And so the people want to be near you. They want to come around you. They They want to follow your lead. Oh, that's a great thing. We should want that in a king. The queen, adorned with gold from Ophir, stands at your right hand. Your wife actually likes you. (laughs) She wants to be near you. That's a big thing. You should want a king like that. That's a great king. Okay? So now he finishes speaking of, pouring words of grace upon the king. And now he turns to the queen. Verse 10, he says, Listen, daughter, pay attention and consider. And everybody knows that, Sideris. We love it when the Bible uses that word, consider. Look, at what she, look what he says. Forget your people. What? Forget your people. And forget your father's house. What? And the king will desire your beauty. Bow down to him, for he is your Lord. The daughter of Tyre... The wealthy people will seek your favor with gifts. Now, I of course wish that he'd written more about the queen. But he writes something really important here. He writes about her wisdom, her trusting nature. He writes about her beauty. And what's clear from verse 12, and this is, this is why scholars believe this is written for an actual wedding... He, said, he calls her the daughter of Tyre, which would have been a foreign nation along the coast, not a part of Israel, which is very common at the time that kings would marry for a political alliance, um, daughters of other nations. Uh, so so this is probably what's happening here. And what he tells her and encourages her to consider is that when she enters into this marriage union, that she would forget her people and forget her father's house so what what does that have to do with anything which is what brings me to the long-awaited Meghan Markle comment there is something about particularly in a royal wedding saying that if I'm going to be married into this family I am going to follow the ways Of this family. And. If you don't feel like you can do that. You shouldn't get married. To that person. Because. There's a power that that the queen possesses. When she unites. To her husband the king. That brings goodness and joy to the whole. Nation. If. If. The queen does not faithfully come underneath the movement and the mission of the king and the nation. You know what she will, you know what she will sow in the world, in her nation? Disunity, discord, trouble. That, that, that's what the psalmist is saying. How amazing and how beautiful it is for the queen to come and give her power to the king, to the royal plan and mission. Now obviously, this is all reliant upon the king being a trustworthy fella. Right? So we don't do this if the king is not a lover of righteousness and a hater of wickedness. Then I would say never come underneath his plan for the kingdom. But there's something here about the perfect couple and the perfect union that that when the queen submits herself to the plan of the king, there is thriving and joy for the whole nation. If not, if her allegiance is more to her father's house and her father's... Now, this is what you got to put it in the context of ancient Israel. Her father's religion, her father's gods, if she brings that into the marriage, into the nation, what's it going to do? If she's more loyal to that than she is to her new family, her new God... That's going to create confusion. The Bible would say false worship, idolatry. You see how important this is. We forget it a little bit now in our modern times, but if this king were to bring in a foreign wife and she brought all of the religious accoutrements with her, this would be a problem. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. What a beautiful, how beautiful it is for the queen to trust the husband and to trust Yahweh and come alongside the proclamation of God's goodness, standing next to her husband, ruling with her husband. And look what it says. The wealthy people, verse 12, will seek your favor with gifts. When people see a husband and a wife, particularly the king and the queen, united in purpose and mission and worship of Yahweh, people want to come and support and bless that. That's what this psalmist is saying. This is the songwriters reminding the queen and praising the queen for her desire to do that. Very interesting, isn't it? Again, this is true in part in a common wedding, but it's magnified in a royal wedding. And obviously, I'm half joking with the Meghan Markle, but you see when that doesn't happen, the kind of fracture that it creates. So that's all he's talking about. Then he goes on and he starts to talk about the procession of the wedding. It says this, In her chamber, verse 13, the royal daughter is all-glorious. Oh, she's radiant, she's beautiful. Her clothing embroidered with gold. in colorful garments she is led to the king. After her, the virgins, her companions, so that would be like her court, her inner circle they come with her, and they are brought to you king. They are led with gladness and rejoicing. They enter the king's palace. Of course, none of this would be possible. There would not be rejoicing and gladness were the king, not a lover of righteousness and a hater of wickedness. But the procession is one of excitement and joy. I always tell people when I do their wedding, I always tell the groom, watch when the bride rounds the corner and turns and see her beauty. See the goodness of God. What a gift she is to you. That's what he's picturing here. Or that's what, what he's singing about, is this amazing moment. And then what's, what's the consequence of this royal wedding? This royal marriage. Look at this, verse 16. It says, Your sons will succeed your ancestors. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will cause your name to be remembered. I, that is God, will cause your name to be remembered for all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever and ever. Wow. When we love righteousness, when we hate wickedness, when we come together in a union, king and queen, For one mission, one purpose, when we do not divide and run, what happens? Blessing from generation to generation. This is the promise of this great love song sang over this couple at their wedding. It's beautiful, right? It's a beautiful picture of God's plan for husband and wife working together for the goodness of their own family all the families. They are blessed to be a blessing. That's the story of scripture. Blessed to be a blessing. A godly marriage. Everything that we could want. And so we pause and we stop there. And we say, wow, to be a part of a wedding like that, that would be amazing. To have a king like that, that would be amazing. To have a queen like that, that would be amazing. Wow. Wow. Now, put yourself in the mind of the people of Israel, knowing this song, seeing it read, however, whether it was only at royal weddings or maybe even in common weddings, king and queen for a day, they know this psalm, they know what a perfect and good king is and a perfect and good queen looks like and the way they partner together and the beauty they create. Think about it. Oh, I know this, I know this, but then what would you do? You'd say this. But we never had a king like that we never had a queen like that there was no royal marriage that worked out like this psalm said it would because the monarchy of Israel fell apart kings came and they went and they didn't love righteousness they didn't hate wickedness queens didn't leave their gods in foreign lands and come and worship perfectly and only Yahweh They brought their gods with them. They brought their religion with them. Their loyalty was to their father's house, not to their husband's. They'd never experienced this. They'd read this psalm over and over. They heard it at weddings and they thought, but they never saw it. Think about it. You've got to get in. Think about the royal disappointment. You feel the disappointment, but wait time and time again. The monarchy always falls short We never experience the goodness that this song sings of. Is it just a fairy tale? That's one of the things the psalm does. It just brings you to the edge of despair. In fact, that's what the Old Testament's all about. Bringing you to the edge of despair. Maybe this will be the king... He seems so great. King David, for instance. He's a man after God's own heart. He seems to love righteous and hate wickedness. Oh, Bathsheba. Mm. He doesn't fulfill this. Solomon, all wisdom, all strength, all power. Biggest army builds the temple. He could be our guy. Yikes. Not so good. The Old Testament's like this. Excitement, excitement. Could be, film it. <coughs> uh, <coughs> Just read the Old Testament like that. That's what it's trying to do. That's what God is trying to do. He's trying to get your hopes up so that he can show you it will never work. Without what? Without him. It's the whole Old Testament. So yes, we read this love song, we say, oh, it'd be so great, I've never seen this in real life. One of the ways you can conceive of humanity... Is that we are, as Blaise Pascal says, deposed royalty. God, in his unfathomable generosity, created us and then gave us the keys to the castle and said, It's all yours. Rule, reign, have dominion, cultivate goodness throughout my good creation. And what did we do? We loved wickedness. And we hated righteousness. And we tore the whole thing down. We are deposed royalty, each and every one of us. Created in the image of God. Given, he, get, He's made us all kings and queens. And yet, we've fallen woefully short of the calling of a king and queen. So feel the disappointment. Feel the despair. Feel the, I don't think it will ever come about that we get our royalty back. This This is where we're brought to when we read the Bible. To the edge. And then somebody shows up. Somebody that's a little different. Somebody that does seem to love righteousness and hates wickedness. He hates it so much that he gave his life. To remove it from his kingdom. This psalm is also all about Jesus. Let me show you Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. It's called Hebrews because it's written to the people of Israel to help them understand (laughs) all the disappointment of the Old Testament, all the unfulfilled promises of this king. And the queen. And this is what Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 says. We'll have it on the screen for you. In a long soliloquy of explaining how Jesus, the Son of God, is superior to angels, guess what the writer of Hebrews does? Verse 8, he quotes Psalm 45. He says this But to the Son, God said this. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, wickedness. This is why God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. Recognize it? Psalm 45. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, actually, God wrote that song about Jesus. He goes on to say, and we don't have this on the screen, but he goes on to say, and and God also said about this, Jesus, in the beginning the Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like clothing. But you are the same, and your years will never end. Who's he talking about? About Jesus. So again, the people of Israel didn't have the book of Hebrews, helping them understand this. All they had was the anticipation and the longing for a king like they read about. That's all they had. And they thought maybe this king would be Ah, not him. Maybe the next king Nah, not him. Monarchy falls apart. The people go back into slavery. They're just at the end of their wits. They're like what is going on here? And then Jesus shows up. And he's not the kind of king they thought he would be. He's not a king with the kind of military power that they thought they needed. He wasn't the kind of king with the kind of wealth that they thought that they needed. He was fighting a different kind of war. He was fighting a different kind of battle. But then as it went on, they started to see, wait a minute, and the Holy Spirit's opening their eyes. Is this the king of Psalm 45? I think it is. I think this is the lover of righteousness that we've been waiting for. And the hater of wickedness that we've been waiting for. This is a, this, Jesus is clearly powerful. He's casting out demons. He's raising people from the dead. He's calming the storm. So he's got the power and the might that we look for in a king. But you know what? His cause is truth. And his cause is justice. And he's it's, and it's humble like you wouldn't believe. You see it? And, and what flows from his mouth? Grace to the poor and the powerless. He lifts them up from their station in life and, and, and says, you are blessed. You see it? It's talking about Jesus. This is the king that we've been hoping for. Now, well, then who's the queen? I mean, he can't be the fulfillment of, of, of Psalm 45 if, if it's just the king part. Who's the queen? Thanks for asking. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter five, Ephesians chapter five. It's just a few pages over. If you've got your Bible, it's page 16, or sorry, 10, uh, 1039. 1039. Classic text, Ephesians chapter 5. We'll have it on the screen for you as well. I'm going to read it to you, but just I'm going to tell you the end before I read it. He is talking about human marriages but he's also talking about another kind of marriage. So pay close attention. It says this, starting in verse 21. He's talking about living a Christian life. He says, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Where in the world have I heard that before? Psalm 45. This is part of what it means to be a good queen. Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is is the head of the church. He, that's Christ, is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as, what? Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor. Flip back, people, flip back to Psalm 45. Remember the processional? In her chamber, the royal daughter is all glorious, her clothing embroidered with gold and colorful garments. She is led to the king. After her, her companions are brought as well. They are led in with gladness and rejoicing into the king's palace. Wait a minute. What? He did this. To present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or anything like that. What did he do? He died for her. He bled for her. He gave up his body for her. He was buried in the grave for her, so that one day, when they are reunited, she would be brought to him in splendor, in beauty, cleansed and washed by the blood of the Messiah. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. Since we are members of his body, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Leave your father's house and your father's gods and your father's passions and come and be united and become one new flesh. Now look at verse 32. This is the key. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Let's just start talking about marriage. Well, yeah, a little bit, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. You see it? What is Ephesians 5 helping us realize in relation to Psalm 45? Christ is the king the church is the queen together we accomplish God's mission in the world and when we don't fight Christ and his purpose and his mission when we don't bring in other gods and idolatry and our own ambition but we seek to have the ambition of King Jesus we bring blessing into the world what do we bring we bring heaven to earth We bring, which is to say, we bring Christ's kingdom to earth here and now when we truly are wed to our King. It's beautiful. It's profound, Paul says, which is to say, it's hard to understand this. So, all of us are the queens of Christ, He is our King. The church, corporately, is His bride. And if you study scripture, you'll see this imagery all the time, particularly in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, where it talks about the great wedding feast of the Lamb, who's King Jesus, and the bride, who is the church. And it says at the end of time, the church will be presented to Jesus, and they will be wed for eternity. There'll be a great feast. There'll be much song sung. Great rejoicing. People won't be able to stop from singing of the goodness of our King, His truthfulness, His humility, His justice. We'll just sing song after song about Him. We'll write poems. We'll speak of Him in our homes. We'll glorify Him with our words. We'll enjoy His goodness as our King. He will be the fulfillment of Psalm 45. Only then will this royal wedding be fulfilled. So every time we try to get as close as we can in this world, I mean, the queen of England now, she's been doing a really good job for a long time. But guess what? Not quite there. We're not there. We'll never get there until we make Jesus king and we get to be his queen. And he will adorn us with every good adornment that you can have. We will be dressed in gold. He will give us new clothing, which is the clothing of Christ, his righteousness, his goodness. And he will strip from us all wickedness and evil. Do you want that kind of marriage? (laughs) This is the kind of marriage that Jesus offers. If you'll belong to him and him alone and forsake your foreign gods, your foreign motives, the power you thought you had, and you give it all to him. I mean, this isn't nothing. King Jesus doesn't say, you can have it all. He says, you can have it all if you give it all away. Are you willing to say yes? Let's pray.